Listen, and I will tell you the story of the Melek Ganadan, the earthen king, who ruled in the garden when the world was young. Those were the green days, when dawn grew like the grass, and the voices of archangels, far off and beautiful as silver horns blown in the east, remained in the skies of the world. The universe was cooling then upon the rack. In Canaan, no tomb was cut. Oh, friends, we have, we have a treat for you this week. I'm John Eldridge. Welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast here in the week of October 23rd. And before I let you in to what we're about to do, we are going to do what we always do, which is to pause and release the chaos, release the pressures, release the fears, release everything that is shouting for your soul's attention already this week. Whether you are at home or out for a walk or in your car, let's take a moment and let it all go. Let it all go. Just release everyone and everything to Jesus so that you can be present to him and to what he has for us here in this week's podcast. And then we always pray, Lord, as I release everything, restore my union with you. Restore our union and meet me here this week. Speak to us in your name. Well, the dramatic reading, I don't know if you recognize the voice. If you were an Ann Sons podcast follower, you recognize Blaine Eldridge. Hey, Blaine. Hey, Dad. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Oh, great to have you back. Alan, also in the studio. Yes. And Blaine, it is so fun to have you here today. And can't wait to let people know why you're here. Yeah. Something about seeing you makes me want Mexican food. I don't know <laughs> what that is. Well, let's go do it afterwards. Sounds good. Okay. It's a little early in the morning for me, guys, for Mexican food. Maybe you can get me something to go. Um, so it, if you haven't been tracking with the ministry and the story over the last couple of years, Sam and Blaine, my sons, ran a 10-year project here called Ansons which was a live podcast weekly, which was also a journal. And I'm using past tense because both Sam and Blaine have moved on to other things, pursuing their dreams, their careers, which is totally, totally appropriate. And Blaine, part of the reason you left and Sons was to clear the deck so that you could do some writing. Yes, it was time. Unfortunately, the principle of leaving the 99 to find the one in the kingdom of God works the other way. And so Jesus issued an invitation to come and be transformed, almost at the expense of an amazing project that got to reach a lot of people who I really, really enjoy. Yeah. But part of it was I had been reading at that point for at least three years, ruminating on this idea to 
reintroduce Jesus in terms of the story of God in the Bible, to blend what's fascinating in the backdrop. Why doesn't Sennacherib show up to the siege of Jerusalem? You get this mysterious character, the Rabshakeh, who rides up and has the conversation in the local version of spoken Hebrew with the emissaries on the wall. That's a great question. Why is Sennacherib not there? Ah, why is Sennacherib not there? Directly kind of uh, relates to why the men of Jabesh Gilead went on a night raid to get the bones of Saul and Jonathan off a city wall. And the reason is Sennacherib's dad was killed in the war and his body never came back, which is like losing the flag or the Roman eagle times a hundred. And it traumatized that character, that real historical individual so thoroughly that he never went to war himself. Anyway, there is this amazing mythic epic universe right there inside the biblical story that sort of had my attention for a long time. So I was mulling on, how can I share what I am starting to experience in Jesus through the Bible with the world? And the product of which is sitting on this table in three places da, right now. Da, 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 da. Mm. So what we're here to announce, gang, and to share with you very richly is Blaine left and sons to go right and to clear the deck to create a book. And the book is called The Paradise King. The subtitle is The Tragic History and Spectacular Future of Everything According to Jesus of Nazareth which is just a killer title. And we're going to explain why and what that's about. Um, but we thought, here's the best way to get into this. We're going to, over the next three weeks, we're going to do a series, mostly letting Blaine read to you excerpts that we love from, from his new book, which is phenomenal. So the book comes out November 15th which is a couple of weeks away yet. I'm dying, dying to give this to friends. Oh my gosh, it's so good. Because it's a self-published project, everyone, the way Amazon works with those is you can't get it until November 15th. But you can put a little reminder in your phone or have Siri remind you on November 15th, you can get the book. But the thing about like book podcast is you can talk about it or you can hear it yeah. and then talk about it. And so that's what we want to do. I want to ask you to simply read that the way the book is laid out, as you'll soon learn, Blaine is taking this sweeping mythic romp through the Old Testament, which points to Jesus, leading to Jesus, but also through history and legend, and yeah, deep research. Each section has an introduction to it that, that Blaine has entitled The Chorus. I want you to read the chorus that comes before Adam. You got it, Dad. This is titled Chorus Creation. Listen, and I will tell you the story of the Melek Ganadan, the earthen king who ruled in the garden when the world was young. 
Those were the green days, when dawn grew like the grass, and the voices of archangels, far off and beautiful as silver horns blown in the east, remained in the skies of the world. The universe was cooling then upon the rack. In Canaan, no tomb was cut. The Rephaim did not deny Sheol, nor did their shades haunt the bare ground under the moon. In Anshan, the horse lords had not appeared. No brick in Uruk was laid. The stone hordes of Harappa were shut. In Nubia, no watchfire burned. In those days, the Melek Ganadin walked alone on the unsullied ground. Whence came he? Bara shet bara Elohim et hashemayim wayet haaretz in the beginning. God made all things, and Yahweh it was. Yahweh. He that is rumored is real, and he is a marvel. He opens his mouth, and stars are born. He speaks, and waters gather together. He made all things. The mountains he made, the seas he made, and at his command the tall grass grew. The hidden realm also he peopled with gods. Molech he made, Horus he made, Siddiq he made, though they at first had other names. Bone-crunching Baymote he made, blood-freezing Lotan he fashioned. The bull and the night demon, they are known to the world, old and vile even in the standards of rebel angels. In the beginning, they were not so. And Yahweh also formed humanity. That was our beginning time. The mist bands were roving upon the earth, and the garden kings were all unborn. Yahweh made a place on his crafting table and fashioned the idol he desired. The idol, yes. The image, the selim. We have seen many scents. The Canaanites made many of these. The stone carvers of Babylon made selim also. Nabu-Kuduri-Utsur made a selim of himself, and to it the three holy children would not bow. Selim are dangerous. Power rolls off them, billowing like fog, and through them gods appear. In pagan temples, it is like a stench. With humanity, it is not so. And kings also are selim, are they not? Pharaoh was the image of God, Naram-Sin was the image of God, Caesar was the image of God. Caesar Augustus Tiberius, the tribute Penny declared, the son of God. Yet no solitary monarch did Yahweh employ but a species, humanity, an idol like no other, an image of living souls that love. We are earthy things, lovers of green leaves and touch in the sun, and yet raised to a status unimaginable. The first of these was human, known afterwards as Adam. He is the Melech Ganadin, the king of the garden, and Admu, the red earth king, and Cohen Ganadin, the priest of the garden, and Navi Yahweh. In other languages, he has other names and one that is known to Yahweh alone. What was he like? That we know. He was mighty, a counselor even to the wise. 
young in body and yet old, old beyond the reckoning of this age, having that quality that belonged to the first generations who walked the clean earth under the sun. What else? Adam was ruddy, a builder. He set animals at ease. He laughed easily. He listened long. But he was strong in the back and strong in the hand. He could labor long hours, and yet no sage was wiser than he. The garden knew nothing of war. But had war come, and Adam been else than a rebel, he would have been more stern and dangerous than any warrior even in a legend. Adam was with God, and he was in the garden. The garden. Gan Aden. That is the place to which all good things point. Whether it lay beyond the rim of the world or some place less far, the scribes do not agree, but surely it was in the east. It was in God's own country. It was on the mountain of God, in Eden itself, from whence flow the rivers that water the world. Yahweh planted a garden in his own presence, and there he brought Adam to learn the holy trade. Yahweh made Adam a shaper of the blossoming world, and they were together. It did not last. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Plain. Man, I, I just want to say, like, my eyes were wide with wonder when you were reading that because it feels like this taste or illumination of the larger story that somehow I, I, until you describe it and write it that way, it hadn't fully come alive to me or there are pieces there that I had missed or didn't know ever. And so just found myself like someone just drawn to a storyteller, but it's not a story. It's, it's truth that's being illuminated. It's reality. Yes. I know the experience of diving in to study the Bible is like seeing Shakespeare performed, which if you've ever had to read Shakespeare in high school. Oh, it's, it's brutal. It is almost unbearable. I remember the first Shakespearean play I ever saw live. My mouth was hanging open and I walked out of the theater and went, what? Why didn't anyone tell me about the beauty of this thing? Yeah. I think part of the problem is that so much of the beauty, in particular of the Old Testament, is just hidden away in academic literature. And so to find the story, to engage the story, and to tell the story in a way that just shows the beauty of the story we find ourselves in has been so much fun. Okay, friends. <laughs> so, so the Paradise King. In the introduction, Blaine explains that living in the moment that we live in in time, so much has just been stripped away. I mean, we, we are just left with the bare, bare bones of biblical truth, of history, of the story of the world, of what God was up to, what his intentions are for humanity. And so... Um, we're going to take you through this. We're going to kind of cherry pick our way through through the story. But one of the really fun things in the book are the footnotes. 
because the, it's not only phenomenal storytelling. It is phenomenally researched, backed up, corroborated. So th- those, are, those are in extensive, beautiful footnotes. But I want to start with the title. Why the Paradise King? What does that what does that mean? Why did you choose that? Yeah, that is such a great question. The title and subtitle are both the way that I would title a reprint of the Bible. Mm. You should pick up a Bible and understand that you're about to learn the tragic history and spectacular future of everything read through Jesus of Nazareth. That's the story in your hands. So the Bible has more than one theme and more than one big thread that goes all the way through it. There's temple and the city of God. There's the institution of prophecy and monarchy. There's what it means to live as a priesthood. And at the center of all of those themes is the need for the king And actually, I say this introduction, the king and queen, it takes all humanity to fulfill this role, but a covenant partner who can see God face to face and create with him into eternity. And it really is the absence of people like that that is one of the primary wounds of the Old Testament story. Most people think when they get to the David story that Israel is doing something wrong when they ask for a king. They say, because they were never supposed to have a king, read a good scholarly book and someone like Tremper Longman III will say, au contraire, flip back in Deuteronomy to the rules for the operation of the king. There was always supposed to be a king. They ask, give us a king like one of the nations. And then they link it in going out and coming in explicitly to prohibited forms of warfare. There are some pretty strong boundaries in the Torah on the kinds of wars that Israel is allowed to fight. They want to transgress that boundary, and they want a king to help them do it. Well, God's vision of a king is so much different. This is someone— The covenant partner. The covenant right partner. Right from the beginning. And you get, in Genesis 1 and 2, a pretty incredible portrait of what that king is supposed to be like. I wrote about this when reading about the naming of the animals. Now, the other Abrahamic religions, which are Judaism and Islam, both redacted to a certain extent. Now, not everything in Judaism redacted the naming of the animals is a complex thing. But for sure, it's completely out of Islam because it's so scandalous because of what it's saying. In Surah 2, God is having a conversation with the angels and he says, name the animals. And they say, you know that we do not know, only you know. And then God says, darn right. Well, they actually got it. And they, in the naming of the animals, God is asking humanity, can you see my plan for the universe hidden inside creation and call it out? And Adam can. There are two problems at the beginning of the creation account, formless and void. And this is getting a little nerdy, but there are two panels, one to three and three to six, and then the Sabbath in Genesis one. And you structure the world and you fill it with life. Well, that is what the paradise king is meant to do. He's meant to structure 
unruly creation set up, you know, an architecture inside of which it can thrive and then fill it. And humanity doing that together is the king and queen that God desires. So the paradise king is not only an Adam story. The paradise king, what you're trying to show is the story that culminates in Jesus. Exactly. The gospel is the story of the reign of God being established on earth by a long-expected king. Bingo. That's what the gospel is. If you were in the Roman Empire in the first century, do you know this? An evangelist isn't a religious position, it's a political position. And your job is to announce a regime change, in essence. There were evangelists who went away proclaiming—this is not a joke, you can read Tom Holland's Dominion— that the reign of God had been established on earth through Caesar Augustus, ushering in the new age of peace. This turned out to not be true. This was a pretty propagandistic story. And yet, under the nose of that very emperor, the great king had come to establish the reign of God on earth. It just happened to be Jesus. Yeah. So— what you do, I'm just kind of bringing our readers along because Alan and I have had the pleasure of reading the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't get the book into your hands until November 1st. It's a self-published book. Everybody, Blaine, decided to go that direction, <laughs> partly at my urging because I just said, look, the publishing industry is going to kill your soul. You guys both told me to do it for the record, so yeah, you're so, a part of this. Well, hope <clears throat> here's, here, <laughs> here's hoping. Um Book comes out November 1st. We're going to give you some tastes over the next three weeks of it because it's so beautiful. Um, Paradise King being the sort of the lead motif, being the through line of scripture, of God's story, of our story, leading to Jesus. What Blaine does is he takes five kings from the Old Testament and walks through their stories and then we turn to Jesus. So we're going to get to Jesus in episode three, everybody, just so you know where we're headed. But first, you've just got to hear, like, I want to go to Abraham because there is there is stuff in the telling and retelling that you've done of the Abraham story that is so phenomenal. So um, first, read us the chorus that precedes Abraham because the history in it is really important. And then we're going to go into a section of Abraham's story that most people don't know, which is called the War of the Chieftains or his part in the War of the Chieftains. So we're going to get two different sections here. First, the chorus, and then let's react to it. So Blaine, before you read it, I'm just curious, tell me more about why there are choruses throughout the book, because that's a very original way to structure it. So what was your heart in doing that? Thank you, Anne. That is such a good question. Well, one of the reasons is that I wanted to hit the big moments, the inflection points in the Old Testament story. But guess what, guys? The Old Testament is not full of filler material, okay? There's no, like, the Bible B-sides. <laughs> and a lot happens between these major points, without which you just don't understand what the character is doing. We are so familiar, we think, with why Moses walks into 
the presence of Pharaoh and turns his staff into a snake. Well, you hardly know where to begin uh, uh, to kind of fix that story. Uh, well, first of all, it's not Moses' staff. Second of all, it's not a snake. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler and third alert. of all, and okay, well, I'm not going to say it right now. Spoiler alert. But all I'm saying is, what has what has happened? Why is he doing that? We think it's hard to understand Jesus when he rolls in. Well, uh, it says in the letters that David fulfilled the will of God for his generation. Okay. What did he do exactly that fulfilled the will of God for his generation? And why does it matter? So to fill in what happened between these main events uh, and to set them up, because what we'll, I won't say too much because we'll talk afterwards, but by the end of Genesis 11 and 12, the entire human predicament has been established and maybe the most brilliant piece of text ever composed. The Genesis prologue is infinitely cool. I was doing a story of God Bible study in church this last year. We got stuck on the Genesis prologue, which is what I call it, some other people too, for like six weeks because it was like, Guys, listen, everything that happens afterward is going to relate in some way into the disaster that took place, not with the capital T, capital F, the fall. That's kind of St. Augustine's preferred way of thinking about the human condition, maybe for obvious reasons. And all of this other stuff takes place where the demonic war breaks out and the problem with empire and what is that gets established and then the Babel event, my goodness, which, you know, the Tower of Babel. Well, first of all, it says a city in the tower. Okay, so let's just fix that for now and forever. And if it's a city in a tower, it means something different, guys. And I'm not making this up. I'm going through the Bible asking the question, what on earth is happening? Exactly. And how do I find out? How do I read and navigate church history in such a way as just to recover the story because so much of it is encoded in millennia old literary forms. Mm. That's why I needed to do the chorus because I couldn't jump from here's Adam and Eve exiting the garden with this hu- with this gate, with this human carved on it, wink, wink, swinging shut behind them. And then Curtain goes down, curtain comes up, and all of a sudden, here's Abram sitting on the edge of his bed. (laughs) Right. You're like, what on earth is happening? So that's what the choruses are for. Which, by the way, is not a new device. It comes from Greek theater. Oh, yeah. Thanks for mentioning that, Dad. I actually, my primary um, point of reference in writing these choruses was Medea. The tragedy oh, wow. because the chorus stays on stage for yes. so much of that play. Right. And I originally did write these as kind of more scholarly expository. Now you have to know that. Yeah. In Orthodox Christian theology. Yeah. yeah. Point one, sub point blah, three. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then I have Seamus Haney's Beowulf sitting next to my Euripides and my other Greek poets, which you gave me, Dad. And I was looking at it and I thought, what would it be like to hear? In like a mead hall, 
something that you could like has meter. You could pound your hand on the table because I think that's much more true to how the biblical story feels and is composed. Yes. We just have to do a little work to recover it. Yeah. Love it. So here's the chorus, guys. Leading into Abraham's story. From Adam to Abraham. Okay. Then came the gloaming time. Black were those years and black are the stories that are told of them. Death was everywhere. Weeds choked the grain. Eyes went blind. Humans woke, not to the joy of the dawn, but to time running out. The years were never enough, and the gravediggers were busy. Even Methuselah, who counted his long life in centuries, could feel the weight on his bones. Death. decreation, Unmaking was the future, and every part of him, from the gray hairs on his head to the unfeeling tips of his fingers, knew it. That was not all. Humanity did not go far. Two seraphim stood outside Eden, just as two seraphim would one day guard the Ark of the Covenant. Later, learned sages saw the connection. It was outside Eden that Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices. Cain was like his father, a gardener, a priest. He might have imaged God, for God warned him. The sacrifices were made. There was Abel's fine lamb, white as a new tooth. There were Cain's first fruits of grain, round and ripe, a good offering. Cain was firstborn. Should not the blessing come to him? Perhaps, but it would not. It was on Abel, named worthless, that God's favor fell. The secondborn. It has always been so. And so Cain was angry, and God could see what was coming. Cain, he said, why are you angry, and why is your face downcast? Cain would not reply. Already, the nobility was almost gone from his face. If you do well, said God, will you not be accepted? Repent, there is a way home for you. Cain scuffed the dirt. The blood was up in his neck. You know, God implored, that if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, he warned. You must rule it, he said. Cain did not. Sin is a slobbering creature. It put on Cain like a suit, and in the field he got his thick hands round Abel's neck and choked the life from him. And yet God did not kill Cain. He sent Cain to make a city of refuge, and that city was a mark on the man. Cain was spared. We have known sin afterward, have we not? It reeks on the skin. No matter how often we bathe, we are not clean. And there is more. Cain was like Adam. Lamech was like Cain. Nimrod was like Lamech. Their bodies were tuned to their father's ruined pitch. Blood feuds began, and into those innocents were born. Much trust was broken, the ground decayed. The Sumerians, who flooded the plain, brought salt there, too. Year after year, they poisoned the ground. In the end, nothing would grow. This 
has a name, iniquity. It is the long-term consequences of sin. Iniquity is a midwife at the birth of every child. Our ancestors' failures are heavy upon us. And there is more. The devil fell first. That creature is nothingness, a being of utter negation. It prowled the world, and its hollow eyes were never far from the watchfires. It was not the only spirit to fall. A third, they say. John the Revelator saw the dragon sweep a third of the stars from the sky. Who knows how? Did it call their names from the realm of the dead? Did it put on splendor and deceive? Did they fall on their own? However it happened, others defected. The worst of these rebellions was on the forbidden mountain, Mount Karam, Hermon. The gods came down, slinking, slithering, prowling, whispering. They sought out the earthly kings, and so Pharaoh Merneptah heard a voice in the dark, and the voice said his name. He woke, and there was Ta with a plan. The old kings of Uruk also were tutored. Ayalu had the fish creature Adapa for an advisor. Alalgar had Uindaga from the sea. In his time, Hammurabi met Shamash, and from that god recovered the knowledge the flood had destroyed. The trend never stopped. Descartes saw lights in his tent, and a creature gave him his method. Oppenheimer set off his bomb, and Krishna spoke. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. These had a plan to rule and remake humanity. The ruling was easily done. The remaking was harder, harder, but not impossible. The enemy has always worked to remake humanity in its own image, an image of ancient jealousy and ravenous pride. This is the method. False stories, false practices, and false rituals. The stories confuse humanity. The practices compound the confusion. But the rituals, these promote false incarnation. Remember, heaven and earth are meant to unite. The presence of God will be in creation. But there are unholy interminglings too. It is called the hieris gamos, the sacred marriage. In the ziggurat of Edamananki, the Babylonians placed a bed. In Uruk, the priestess Natitu welcomed the demon and slept with a man. In Greece, the wife of the archon king knew Dionysius and the Bukalean. In tantric Buddhism, they learned Maithuna. In many places, the practice survives. Two humans united, but one embodied a demon. The Nephilim were born from this. The giants. Like humans in stature, but with immortal malice staining their hearts. These were a sign. Humans unmade creation. They disordered the world and made chaos everywhere. Eventually, God allowed them the chaos they made. He released the waters and the world was unmade. For a while, it was as though creation had never been. And yet some were spared. Noah, whose name is Comfort, was Adam again. He ruled the animals in a floating paradise. He came down on the mountain of God. On Tishri 1, he came. He planted a garden and then he fell too.
and so civilization spread like fire. The old sorcerer kings lived in their palaces. Traders crossed the Taurus and Zagros Mountains with lapis lazuli and tin and iron and cloth and tools. Knowledge increased. Humans made canals and ditches and sluice gates and reservoirs and watered the plain of Shinar. They enslaved whole populations and made a government to manage it all. At last, they looked up. Let us they thought, make Eden ourselves. We will make God come down. A capable slave he would be. The work began. There were no stones in Shinar, no good rock for building, but there were mud bricks and sticky bitumen. The city was built. The tower rose. Did they think God would not see? That he who is enthroned above the host was sleeping? He was not. The council was gathered. The host was there. To these, God said, this is only the beginning. A tremor went through the council. Much evil they had already seen. Tribes enslaved. Nations destroyed. Demons summoned and entertained like honored guests. There is nothing they will not do, Yahweh continued. From far below, the workers' chant came up like a witch's incantation. Bring God down. Bring God down. God considered. Very well, he said. Let's go down. Oh, yes, humanity miscalculated. We cannot make Eden and we cannot abide the force of his coming. When God came down, the work stopped. The laborers winced. Their bones hurt and their skin crawled. Their languages and customs and knowledges divided. Sin was in them. When God approached, that sin melted away. Fallen humanity cannot abide the presence of God, and so they fled. Let others, God determined, rule these. And so he divided the nations. He appointed spiritual governors to mediate his rule. These are the principalities, the great archai. He fixed the borders of the peoples, Moses said, according to the numbers of the sons of God. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, the angel declared, 21 days. The prince of Greece, he added, will come. Yahweh appointed princes to govern the nations, and then he withdrew. He withdrew. That was a terrible thing. No inroad remained of God's good government. No human partner loved him. In those days, there was no king. But Yahweh is not on the field outmatched. His wit is keen and his love is wide. He is long in planning and bold in action. Many years went by, and then he moved. He slipped unseen into enemy lands. Under the noses of arrogant kings, he sought out a man. Wow. (laughs) Blaine, as you're reading that, like, it just is so orienting to understand the story behind the story, the story we're in. 
I don't know if it reminded you of this, John, but it reminded me in the the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, in the first movie, they have that opening sequence. Right. Before you get to the Shire to understand what's really going on here. And, exactly. and if you trace it back and back and back and back. And it felt like that as you were reading this, Blaine, like, wow, it's such a larger story that we're in. And we have a part in that story, but we have to know the beginnings first. Yeah, exactly. When you, friends, you have to get this book. Okay, everybody. It, it, I'm just cracking up in so many, for so many different joyful reasons. One, you have heard that my son is a phenomenal writer, a better writer than me by far. Thanks, Dad. And But the worldview of it, the research behind it, He's not making these things up. These, this is all in the biblical text and, and in good, good biblical scholarship. Uh, so one of the things that the Paradise King will give you or restore to you, it is restoring to us God's view of reality, right? There are princes. They rule the kingdoms of this world. They are fallen. They're, you know, on and on it goes. And, and the, the, you know, the power of iniquity, the collective sin in the human experience down through time, like this will give you a worldview that will help you understand the current moment. It really will. So all of that, that was babble. That was, yeah. Oh, yeah. And if I could say like one thing, there's that great line, reality is what you hit when you're wrong. My favorite version of this is from Martin Heidegger, who called the givenness of the world the brute facticity of reality. It has a muscular immovability. And if you misdiagnose the human condition, your solutions are going to be bad. Yeah. If you're blind to a part of reality, that's going to be a problem. And so many of us grew up in what I call the splash zone of the Protestant Reformation, where what we mostly get is that the human problem is sin, which don't get me wrong, is a big deal and a very good thing to know about, that there's this ontological, this on the level of the body taint, bentness. When C.S. Lewis in the Space Trilogy needs a cognate word for sin, he uses the word bent. Yes. But it's not the only problem. And when you get something right now, like, you know, the field of epigenetics or observations on the neuroplasticity of the mind. They go, well, come on, what does sin have to do to the fact with, the, with intergenerational trauma? I'm like, guys, the Guess Bible what? gets it. And it's right there in the text in this thing, Avon, the generational consequences of sin. And you don't treat it the same way you treat sin. You do not. And then spiritual oppression lined up with oppressive empires is there from the beginning. And what it gives you is you add the color filters to the world, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a story that makes sense. Yes. It's adequately complex. Yes. And it lets you see the brilliance of what Jesus does when he rolls in, not needing to fix the sin issue. Jesus rolls into the human condition, and there is the Gordian knot right in front of him of how are you going to save people? humanity from sin and from rebellious spiritual powers and from the presence of death in the world and from iniquity and from all this broken trust and transgression. And it's kind of like watching 
a great gymnast or something do their routine to see the quadruple backflip through a flaming hoop where Jesus sticks the landing and pulls off the impossible, which we'll talk about in a couple episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So the chorus, Adam to Abraham, is setting up fall, human experience, evil civilizations, dark spirits, all of that. And then why Babel? Why is Babel such a big deal? the cities, the ziggurats, all that was going on there. And then God calls a man. He, 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 he walks up to a guy. Hey, Abram, I, I got a deal for you, right? And then, and then you get the story of Abraham in that moment, in that disaster, in that historical context, you can begin to understand that going down and the taking of the promised land and all of that, I mean, it's wild stuff, Wild, wild, wild. Um, but we promised a bit of the War of the Chieftains, and w- I, we have to deliver on that. So, because Alan and I will just sit here and nerd out about the book. Totally. Let's hear a little bit more from Blaine on Abram. Now Abraham has followed God down into Canaan, he, and he's walking around the land. He's walk, yes. walking around. Well, for the record, yeah. I see what you're doing here, Dad. Uh, <laughs> he's actually gone down to Egypt and come back at this point. Yeah. And so we are in this scene. The background that you need to know is that a lot of time has gone by, and he's gone through a Lord of the Rings quality quest because he can't get from Ur to Canaan on a straight line because of this tiny little gigantic thing called the Arabian Desert. You have to go up the Euphrates River to get to the watersheds that come down south of Turkey to get to Canaan at that time. And all of this stuff happens. Years and decades go by. There's a famine. He's done some pretty wild stuff. He's gone into Egypt. He's rolled back into Canaan. He's divided with Lot. And then you get a a truly fascinating story that I figure for time I should, I'm just going to give the hook section. Yeah. Biblical people notice that this story seems to have been recovered much later than some of the other elements in the text. Use the word recovered on purpose. And they go, well, why is that in there? Well, maybe it's to affirm political realities, blah, blah, blah. People drive me crazy sometimes. I haven't mentioned that. Um, No, is what this is the story that sets up uh, that kind of famous character named Melchizedek. He rolls in at the end of this story yes. on purpose. Yes. So here we go. This is from. They need a little more background. All right. So these five chieftains, these great kings, have created an alliance to come down and ransack Canaan, including Sodom. They're going to ransack Sodom. They're going to take away hostages. Yeah, presumably it's uh, treaty violations. And by the way, when they talk about there being pits in an area, right? I just love the strategic imagination of the biblical writer and of people's ability to picture ancient battlefields. Because when I ask most of my friends, what do you picture? The answer is nothing. And I go, those pits are the great mines, the mines of the Tel Esamon river civilization. And they're huge. And so... Uh, Ridley Scott, looking at you here, this battle sequence is bananas because you're on a field that's pocketed, not with like an occasional well, 
But with these multi-acre, 30, 40 acre mines that are kind of the engine building the actual walls and buildings of these empires, that's where this battle takes place with probably early Babylonians who are all scary. Amraphel, who's in the story, you know, his name, I think the best translation is he who speaks darkness. And his war ally is Ketoleomer, taker of sheaves, plunderer. So he who speaks darkness is a little cue that you're talking to about an ancient sorcerer king, if he knows the counsels of the spirits, is allied with a guy who's depicted just as the war hammer. Yeah. He's the plunderer. Yeah. And they get together and they say, let's go down and punish these guys yeah. for probably treaty violations. Yeah. And the they cities come down get and sack. They're leading away hostages. Abram is quite far away from where this takes place. So I think it's interesting to wonder why the survivor of Sodom who shows up in the story, what is it about Abram's reputation that he goes and gets him? He, he's not the only person nearby who's related to someone in the captive train. What is it about the reputation of his fighting force, which must have been quite good, that this guy goes... We got to go get Abram. Yeah, there are 30 chieftains who are a lot like Abram within walking distance of Sodom. But I'm going to haul up into the Rocky Mountains over there and find this guy, which surprisingly he does. And for the record, a lot of things in this scene, I can give you a another time, like line by line. There, the hints are in the biblical text and the way that dialogue gets structured and you realize... These two guys are talking in one place, but all of a sudden they're in a different place. They are in a different place. From Genesis 14. They brought in the survivor at night. He was weary and manic with a bad wound in his arm that was already festering. The sentries observed it and guessed he would die. Not that they hadn't almost killed him themselves. It was wartime. Everyone was on edge. Just in time, one of Abram's men had recognized the Sodomite accent, and they'd made a litter and carried him past Mamre and Eskel and Anner, Abram's allies, to Abram himself. At last, by the oaks of Mamre, the canny patriarch beheld the refugee. Where is he from? Abram asked. From demons, his men replied. From Sodom, we think. The fighting came into the valley. Abram considered. It was only a matter of time, he said. Everyone knew about the invasion. Elam, Babylon, and the Hittites had sacked the Rephaim. They had crushed certain Amorites. Then they'd come into the Jordan plain. It was better to run from a coalition like that. The cities of the plain had not. Abram spoke softly. Have some water, he said and tell me your news. The man drank and sputtered. His hands shook violently. They've taken the people, he said. I know, Abram replied. He was direct. He was not unkind. He asked, your family? The man shook his head. No, he said, yours. He found Abram's eyes. They took Lot at once, the atmosphere changed. Abram was still, like a huge humped shadow he seemed. The muscles were hard in his face, and his eyes grew dark and dangerous. 
Slowly, he stood. Thank you for telling me, he said in a deadly voice. Eliasar, have my physicians attend to this man. He spun and left the tent. Outside, his leading men stood in the dark. Gather the Gaborim, Abram clipped before they could speak, and tell Mamre I need him. When are we leaving? Someone asked. Now! Abram roared and went off in wrath to gather his own battle gear. So what people don't know, what I didn't know, is that then they go on this unbelievable raid. About a hundred miles, probably. To rescue Lot from this invincible army of sorcerer kings. Oh, yeah, and just the geography. Dan, it doesn't exist yet, but it's the region where the battle takes place. And what you got to know is this story is like, hey, someone was kidnapped in Colorado, and they gathered a vigilante mob and went after him. And in El Paso— they caught the <laughs> they retreating caught guys. Texas. And yeah. you say, oh, you are right on the border of old Babylon. If you get one inch further, these guys are going to disappear into the imperial roads. So you also have the texture of, does Abram run out of time? Does he force the issue? Because they they're at Dan now, and they're, you can't wait another day to start this battle. Yeah, yes. Credible writing, credible storytelling. Alan, what was your reaction when you finished the book. It was a, what was through the book, not even, I didn't even have to get to the end. It was from beginning to end, just this stunned awe of a larger story we were in. I mean, John, we hear a lot at Wild at Heart, like when we talk to people about the message of the heart, why didn't I hear this earlier? Like I was in church my whole life. Yes. Well, I felt that way about Blaine's book in that why hasn't anyone ever told me or preached or I've never heard the depth of what these stories really mean in a context that ties it, not just to interesting facts, but to who Jesus is and why it matters. And, And that larger story changes our stories. And so I can't encourage listeners enough when this book is out, like, Get it and dive in. It it will rock your world in the best way. In some beautiful ways, leading to Jesus. Okay, gang, I know we're just getting started. So three-part series to this. We'll be back next week with more. Uh, you can get the paperback or you can get the audio book read by Blaine on November 15th. You can go to BlaineEldridge.com. And right there at the beginning... If you sign up to get notified when the book comes out, I'll shoot you a reminder. You can read the chapter on Josiah, which is many people's favorite. Oh, awesome. Okay. Okay. I'll I'll put that link in the show notes too (laughs) so people can find it and click on it. That's really helpful. So next week we're going to come back. We're going to do David. We're going to do Josiah. Um, Yeah, fascinating stuff on the Exodus. I mean, just, yeah, really beautiful, beautiful storytelling. But this is our story. This is our story. And and we are recovering it at a desperately needed moment. So we'll be back next week, everybody, with more. 